You are listening to audio from The Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.org. feel so privileged right now to get to welcome up who will be sharing the heart of God and his heart with you tonight. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, oh my gosh, what accolades do I share? Like, how do I frame this person? Because he's truly become one of my favorite humans on planet Earth. We've been living, my husband and I and our kids have been living here for about a year now, but we've known Jesse for a while. And from afar, we, we knew who he was through my brother-in-law, Brett, who's the lead pastor, and he's very intellectual. He's very smart, very big heart. And I was like, oh man, this Jesse guy must be very intellectual because they went to seminary together. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, we probably can talk about some things, but I don't know. You know, and that's kind of intimidating of like, oh, probably not, probably not going to know what I'm going to talk about. And then the next way of framing Jesse was um, he is an incredible musician, and so is my husband. So I've heard them create music in our house, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And the gift that that gives to my husband is a gift that it gives to me of just like, listen to that. That is amazing. So I was like, okay, I could frame it like that, which now I've done because I said all that, right? But I thought really the best way that has been my favorite way of framing Jesse right now is through the eyes of my daughter, who is seven, and she is incredibly blunt. She is very honest, and she wants to figure out the world constantly. She has constantly questions like, how do you put your hands on the steering wheel? How do you fold this towel? How do you wash your hands? How do you eat grapes the right way? Like She just wants to know the right way to do everything and then master it. So over the last several weeks, we've got to spend a lot of time with Jesse and his little boy, Justice, who um, every time they leave our house at night, which is where my daughter usually asks these very important questions about where do you put your hands on the steering wheel, um, how do dogs like mate, you know, just questions are like, oh gosh, <laughs> nine o'clock at night. Um, <laughs> but one thing that she consistently has said very honestly over and over and over, and I preface this by saying that this man has been walking through hell, through some really hard obstacles, as well as has his son. And my daughter at night will say, he really loves his son, doesn't he? I'm like, yeah, he does. Justice really loves his daddy, doesn't he? I'm like, yeah, he does. I said, how do you know? What made you see that? He said, the way they look at each other and the way they hug. And for someone, for someone to hug and love their child and show up at our house and be a friend and show up in this capacity at the capacity leading on stage with all that he has going on in his world is beyond me, is God within him. So whatever he has to say tonight, know that it is truly from the heart of God, from his own life experience that is very authentically lived out. And my seven-year-old daughter says so, and she does not lie. <laughs> so with all that, I would like to frame for you guys, Jesse Watts. Kelly, thank you. <laughs> You're so sweet. Um, yeah, y'all, it is... Uh, really surreal uh, to be up here right now. I can remember uh, going to seminary with Brett many years ago, and we would have these long, late-night conversations about our dreams for a community like this before it ever existed. And so to stand here where he normally stands and to see y'all's faces and know who's a part of this community is just overwhelming to me. It's, it's, it's a dream come true in ways that many of you may not fully get yet, but you will. Um, so in the spirit of vulnerability, which is a core value of ours, right? Yes. 
Yes, it is. Good job. Good memory. I feel like I should confess just a few things before we get really rolling. Um, You are catching me at a very raw and depleted point of my life. And I mean, this week I felt incredibly frustrated that I did not get to put in the hours that I normally do in writing a message. I also felt this immense pressure um, that this is the first time I get to do this with a community that I have such deep love and care for. And so instead of delivering this very well-crafted and meaty sermon that would just like blow your minds, um, I think tonight it's not going to be that. It's going to be honest, a hot mess, and just like from the heart, show and tell of what God's been doing in my life lately and what I think would be valuable for y'all. Is that okay? Is that cool? Awesome. So I have this comical love of cheesy disaster movies. Anyone else? Cheesy disaster movies? Wow, I'm alone. Cool. I'm, no, I'm talking about like movies like, guys, the, the more dumb and ridiculous the movie, the better for me. I like t- movies like 2012, anybody? Day After Tomorrow, Dante's Peak, anybody? I mean, really, honestly, they are art, true art to me. I, I can't, I really don't understand why I love these movies so much or why I love to just watch mayhem unfold on screen. Um, but it, it is hilarious to me. I watch these movies and because it's thing after thing after thing after thing happens. And these characters just narrowly escape the crazy catastrophe crashing around them and they never give up. They're just like, whew, we just, we just made it. And it's always that. They just always make it. And then what happens at the end? It's this big, awesome, happy ending, and everything ends up being okay, right? It's, it's, very, it's very cool. And, and, and honestly, I, I love these movies because I just love these characters and how they never give up, right? Even though it feels very, very silly to me. It, it, it feels goofy because at the end of these movies, and I'm, I'm going to say it, I get kind of emotional sometimes. Seriously, I get kind of emotional. I'm just like, they've been through so much, and look, the giant alien bug invasion only strengthened their friendship. <laughs> like, it's, it's so goofy. Like, they're an escape from reality, right? In which all of us enjoy every once in a while. We love to escape from reality, but that's the thing, is they're not reality, right? Because if this stuff is happening in real life, we don't enjoy watching it, right? It doesn't happen. And I bring this up because the last few years have felt a little like a disaster movie, <laughs> Honestly, like it's been thing after thing after thing, pandemic, racial injustice. Uh, uh, we've lost family members and friends. We've had, we've lost jobs. I mean, so much loss in such a short amount of time. And, I, and I'm telling you that I've had these just horrific conversations with people where they're telling me their story and they're losing hope. You, have any of you felt this? at all in the last few years? Because when, when we're kids, right, we, it's very easy to just think everything's going to go great. It's going to be wonderful. But then we get older and it gets harder, right? So here, here, here's what I want to do. What I want to talk about tonight is this, is that I wholeheartedly believe that having hope is no longer realistic. In fact, I think we should just go ahead and give up hope. Aren't you excited? Aren't you so glad Brett asked me to speak? I can feel my mom having a panic attack um, online. It's okay. Um, comment so we know you're okay. Um, but here's, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to jump right in. So if we ask the general public 
the, their definition of hope, we'd get a pretty predictable answer, right? I, it would be something like, like this. Hope is the feeling that things will eventually all be okay. Right? Does that, does that feel about right? Now, if we translated it more honestly, I think it would sound more like this. That hope is the feeling that everything will eventually go my way. And that I will eventually get all I want and deserve. I think the majority of us, if we're being really honest with ourselves, that's what hope means. And that's what hope means when we tell it to other people. When we say, hey, have hope. It's going to be fine. You'll get that job. You'll eventually make that money. You'll, you'll get approved for that house. You'll find that partner, right? How many of you have said this to people before? I know I have all, all the time. And, and here's, here's the problem with that is when I say I don't believe hope is realistic, that's the kind of hope I'm talking about. That's the hope that I'm talking about because that kind of hope usually leads us to a problem. And that problem is this, is that things rarely go our way. Yes? No? Am I the only one that things aren't going my way? No, things rarely go our way. We rarely get what we want and what we feel we deserve. It is very likely that things and situations as we see them are not going to end up okay, right? In fact, I would be willing to bet that almost everyone in this room would agree that life has this consistent and extravagant way of kicking our asses over and over and over again. Can I, can I get in some agreements? Yeah, some of you. Yes, okay, thank you for heaven's sake, y'all. I'm just like, man, I'm really lonely up here in these feelings. I need to rethink all this. Um, <laughs> the problem is that when we stop feeling hope, because that's what happens. When life happens to us over and over and over and over again, we start to feel that feeling of hope leave us. And when we stop feeling hope, we end up in a kind of paralysis, right? We get stuck in this victim mentality and stop trying, basically. That feeling, that kind of hope is not realistic. It, is, it isn't sustainable. It only leads to a wasteland of sorrow, a hellscape of the heart and mind. It's just not good. So if not that, then what? Because that's the hope we've all been living off of, right? We've been kind of just scraping the bottom of the barrel of that kind of feeling of hope. But when that hope leaves, then what? What do we do? And that brings us to our scripture tonight. So it's going to be Psalm 126. You can follow along on your phone, your physical Bible, screen. Here we go. You ready? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Y'all, I adore the Psalms. And there was actually a very large section of the sermon I cut out of me just gushing over how much I love the Psalms, but we just didn't have the time. But this Psalm in particular has become 
very, very important to me as a person. You see, in the first three verses, the Hebrew people are remembering a time of great rescue, um, they, a time when God really came through for them. Um, in fact, I love the line. It says that we were like those who dreamed, that what happened was so outlandishly impossible that it felt like a dream come true to them. It was insane. It was so good, in fact, that the nations surrounding them looked in and said, wow, their God is kind of amazing to them. And which, honestly, that's actually pretty rare, biblically, that nations would do that, that that's even mentioned. Because most of the time, nations didn't even notice them because they were so small. So, but then there's this shift. We move from them remembering to requesting. We hear them say, the Lord, when the Lord restored our fortunes, now it's restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev is a desert. So what does this line allude to? Are they in good times? No, no. In fact, they are comparing their lives to a dry and lifeless desert. And actually, here's the thing about the Negev Desert. If you Google it, it's not an attractive desert. It's not like the ones that have the rolling hills of sand, and it's kind of beautiful. No, not this one. It's like rocky and sharp, and there's not barely any sand, and it's just kind of ugly to look at. But here's the thing about the Negev is when the rains come and flood the desert, these huge rivers form almost overnight. And so this is what they're talking about is they're asking God to bring back their fortunes swiftly. And, and you can see this if you, I dare you to go YouTube this and you will see a recent video of the Negev desert. There's all these people holding their phones and they're just looking at a dry something. You're like, what are they looking at? And then in 30 seconds, this rush of water just comes from almost out of nowhere and creates this huge river. It is remarkable. It still happens today. And this is what they're asking for, to swiftly bring back their fortunes like the rains, bring back these strong rivers back to the Negev desert. It's rapid. It's strong. It's abundant. I love, I love that imagery. And then this begins this beautifully poetic agricultural compare and contrast section. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return home with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. You know, of course, you know, agricultural language is not really a part of our everyday life. Like, we're not saying sow and reap. Like, we're just not using that kind of language. But what, and what makes this hard is when we don't use that kind of language, we kind of write off things like this. We're like, eh, sowing, reaping, blah. okay, what does that have to do with me? But we don't want to miss what's being communicated in this because it's profound and it's all about hope. Isn't that amazing? So this psalm is a song about the in-between times of life. The time when you are right in the midst of this and you look back on the good old days, which we do all the time, right? We look back on the good old days and then we dream about the better days in the future. But right now, the right now, the present isn't good. It's just not good. And so they, they are doing this crazy thing that I think is really fantastic. Um, they are, hold on, here we go. Um, do you, do you see that in this, this psalm that they are in a time of serious despair? Because we see this in the language, they're in tears, they're weeping, things are not good. But the profound part about this psalm, and this is where it gets really good, the profound part about this psalm is what it says they're doing in the midst of their despair, what they're doing while they're weeping. And so what, what are they doing? What are they choosing to do while they're weeping? Did anyone catch it? They're planting seeds. 
They're planting seeds. They are going out. They're carrying seeds for planting. They are sitting. They are not sitting at home wallowing and whining. They are weeping and working. This is, you guys, this is what I find so deeply profound about this psalm. Because what it shows is that hope is not a feeling. It's a practice. Hope isn't a feeling. It's a practice. When hope changes from being an emotion to being a practice or a discipline, how we live in response to treacherous times changes as well. Suddenly, we no longer have to feel hope to act hopeful. Does that make sense? What do I mean by a practice or a discipline? It's simply an activity to train oneself to do something controlled in a habitual way. We do this all the time. Do you, brushing our teeth every day, I hope showering, you know, uh, doing the dishes, drinking a certain amount of water every day. You know, we do practices all the time, but this practice is kind of strange. It doesn't come natural, right? Make no mistake, like this is a, a weird tension to be weeping and in despair and then still go out and plant seeds and plant and, and do work, right? Do the work of hope, but it's a healthy tension, uh, to hold. Now I want to be very, very clear that what I'm not saying is that you should ignore your emotions and get back to work. Because I think you, actually, that's a very Texas way to interpret this, like, well, you shut down your emotions, put on your work boots, and get her done. Like, that is not what this psalm is saying. It's not what it's saying. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. It's much more beautiful than that. I believe it's much more honoring to your emotions. In this practice, you don't shut down your emotions, you carry them with you. You hold them in the same hands that you hold the seeds for planting, and as you plant the seeds, your tears water the soil. Isn't that a beautiful image? Absolutely beautiful. Now, you may be wondering, how is being a weeping gardener an act of hope? Let's talk about that. So while not common for us, the agricultural language and imagery was very common. This is how they spoke. We can tell that by how much Jesus used agriculture to teach in the Gospels. I mean, it's everywhere. So when we think about planting seeds in seasons of despair, we must look really closely not to miss the deeper meaning. When we plant a seed in the ground, those who, how many are, are gardeners? Gardeners in here? Okay. The, I think you're honest gardeners when you're like, nah, kind of. You know, when you plant a seed, for new life to come out of that seed, the seed has to die in a way. The, the shell of the seed gets left behind and kind of falls off as the new plant grows upward and puts roots down, right? Planting seeds is basically a funeral. You know, you're putting a seed in the ground and you are burying it to eventually die. Now you're burying it alive, which is different than most situations, but... So, so here's how it's an act of hope, though, is because once we put that seed in the ground, we naturally must let go of control of what happens from that point on. We really can't do much after that. So when we plant seeds in our seasons of despair and sorrow, we are acting in hope that God will do the beneath the ground work in our lives. We are trusting God to do the in the grave work that is way beyond our reach and beyond our power. We can't do that work. Once the seed is planted, we have done our part. We have practiced hope. Then we let God do the miracle work of resurrection to new life. And how can we trust that God does that work? Well, isn't that the gospel? 
Isn't that what we believe when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Isn't that the essence of every single worship song we sing in this room? This psalm is a Holy Saturday psalm. And Holy Saturday is that, that day between Good Friday and Sunday. It's that sad day after Jesus has died and hasn't risen yet. It's full of sorrow, full of questioning, confusion, doubt. It's that time when they look back on all their beautiful times with Jesus and they hope for something crazy in the future that they don't know is going to happen or not. It's the, time, the in-between time that they don't feel right now. I kind of alluded to this earlier, um, but the last 10 months of my life have been by far the darkest, for sure. Um, let's see, in, in, the, in the span of that time, my marriage of 12 years ended. Uh, my career as a pastor crashed and burned in a glorious fashion. Um, I found myself in financial crisis, and I experienced new depths of depression that just really terrified me and some people who were close to me. Like it was, I can't, I wish I had the words to explain how painful and humiliating uh, it's been. I mean, it, it really has been hard. So, so when, back in October, when this all began, I was very angry and very full of fear, right? I was angry at myself, angry at others around me. I was really angry at God, you guys, like really angry at God. Because my upbringing would say that I've earned a better situation and that God should make that happen. You know, I grew up very evangelical, right? So that's, that's my, my upbringing. And so people would be telling me, like, oh, you know, just have hope. You know, just, just keep having hope. Keep going, brother. You know, God will fix this. Which, side note, that's called toxic positivity, and what that is, is when people can't handle your negative emotions, they just throw positive statements at you to try and, like, stop it. And it is not healthy and not helpful. Okay, here we go. Right back here. I started this note on my phone, uh, and I titled it The Reality of Hope, which is the title of this sermon. And I just proceeded to write horrible, hateful things about hope. I'm just like, hope is stupid. Stupid. I mean, I, I used much color, more colorful language than that. And I wrote horrible things about hope, horrible things about God, because I was so angry at the situation that had happened to me. And, and I, I, man, I can't, I still have the note. I should post it. It would be really colorful. Um, but even then, even while I was doing that, I had some weird evangelical wiring telling me, even if I could fake the hope, then maybe God would see it and fix my situation. Spoiler alert, he didn't fix it. In fact, it got worse. It got much worse. I can remember vividly the night that I felt the last little ounce of hope leave me. Um, and it was Christmas Eve. And I was alone. And I remember that night I was really struggling to find a reason to keep going. I didn't really see a point. Thank God for my son. Because he was, I was like, oh, I, I have a son. But if not for him, I really was like... I don't see a point. I've lost, I've lost all these things that I really, truly care about. But that's when I came upon this psalm. 
And any time that I fell into weeping, I'd pull out my Bible and I'd start reading this psalm. You can see this page in my Bible is very, like, wet. <laughs> like, it's, like, you can tell it got wet, like it, something spilled on it. Um, and I would just cry and read this psalm over and over again. And I would resonate with these people who feel in despair. But I realized that they were doing something different than I was doing. They were going out and planting seeds, and I was staying at home waiting for my life to pass me by. You see, this psalm transformed how I saw hope. It transformed how I saw God. It transformed how I, uh, how I saw myself. I stopped seeing myself as a victim and began to plant seeds even in the midst of my despair. I began to experience God as one who invites me to participate in creating new life. I plant the seeds, and God does the miracle work of resurrection and growth. You see that? Have you ever experienced that in your life? So um, now what do I mean by planting seeds? Because that is a very, like, we could leave here and go, what the heck was he talking about? Planting seeds? I have no idea. So here are two things that I did that I consider planting seeds that I think might be helpful to you. So the first seed that I planted was one of silence and solitude. So now I do not have near enough time to go into this the way I want to because I'm really into spiritual disciplines and I could talk like eight sermon series way longer than the first Peter one. Um, but this will have to do for today. Anyone got that joke? Okay. But don't chirp, chirp, chirp. Okay. Um, so during Lent, which is that 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter, most people traditionally give something up, right? Like chocolate or soda, or they add something in like reading the Bible more or praying more. Um, for me, what I decided to give up this last year was I'm giving up movies, TV shows, and podcasts for 40 days. And I was like, this is, I'm swinging for the fences here. And for those of you who know me, I'm like a real, I mean, I told you a little bit, I'm a real big movie nerd. Like, I go and review movies for fun online. Um, and so giving up movies was really tough. And, and what this did, though, is this created a ton of space for me to be alone and in silence. I mean, there were many nights that were just complete silence and many meals eaten alone. And in those times, I came face to face with my darkness, because here's the thing, none of us like being alone with ourselves. This is why we constantly fill our life with, with Instagram, TikTok, TV shows, Netflix, texting, like all this stuff. We just fill the space with all this junk because when we are alone and we have room to think and we're not doing something, we don't like what comes up. We don't like the thoughts that make their way forward. But here's the thing is, if we don't do that, we will never heal. And, and, and this, is, this is what God wants to do with you. This is the work God wants to do with you. Because when I did this, I experienced God in profoundly intimate ways that I hadn't in a really long time. So one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, uh, talks about solitude this way. He says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsion of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. You see, so all, all it is is solitude and silence are a way to strip away distractions so we can sift through our darkness with God. That's, 
That's really what it is. And actually, uh, I said that. That's not Henry, but I feel, I feel good about that. Thank you. Whoever made the slides, James, thank you for that. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're like me and you're thinking, like, when on earth am I supposed to get alone and in silence? Like, that never happens in my life. And I would, agree, I would have agreed with you, like, when does that happen? But I think there are little solitudes in our lives, um, like being stuck in traffic. If you ever have to drive through Dallas, like, there's times that you're just sitting there. That could be a time of solitude and silence. Maybe the few minutes um, in bed before you wake up or before you go to sleep. It doesn't have to be long. It can be just a few minutes. Um, or maybe, this is my favorite one, while you're in the car, don't listen to anything. Just drive, drive in silence and see what happens. Uh, pay attention to the road um, still, but uh, I did get in a car accident that way <laughs> once. Um, but, I, but really what I'm trying to say is, is you are going to have to explore your life and find that space. And maybe like me, you're going to have to intentionally remove some things that you really love to do to create that space to go there with God, right? So the next, the second seed I planted was community. I know this is going to sound cheesy, but for me, the greatest temptation when I'm in seasons of despair is to uh, withdraw or disappear, um, to isolate ourselves from community is insanely destructive. And most of us know that. Like, most of us know, like, oh, we need people. But somehow, when we get into these seasons, we're just like, bye. <laughs> just slowly hide and walk off into the darkness. Um, and, and for those of you who know me well, um, you know that when you don't see me anymore, red flag. When I'm not answering calls, when I'm not attending church, when I'm not showing up to friend gatherings, something is not right. And, and my friends know me really, really well to know that they, I'll say, yeah, I'm busy. They're like, no, we're coming over right now. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm the, okay. You know, and, and so, but what's cool about this seed of community is while it's the hardest one to plant for me, it's also shown the quickest growth. It's the one where it's like, if you've ever planted something and you come back the next day and you're like, oh, whoa, a sprout already. That's how community has felt to me. Um, so Henry now and again, he talks about solitude and community in tandem. So listen to this. In community, we learn true humility. People of faith need community, for without it, we become individualistic and at times egocentric. Preach, Henry. As difficult as it is, community is not really an option in the spiritual life. Community springs forth from solitude and without community, communion with God is impossible. We are called to God's table together, not by ourselves. So simply, my encouragement is this. Answer that phone call. Go out with those friends. Come to church. Get in a meetup. Find your people. And lean into that community even more when you're in a season of despair in a season of sorrow or sadness. That's the time to do even more with your community, not pull back. So these are just a few of the seeds that I planted. And if, you really would, if you're really interested in all the things that I've been doing, we could get coffee. Or next July, when Brett goes on a break, I'll just get back up here and go, part two, here we go. <laughs> um, so, so to close, I just want to say this. Um, so we're really, really clear on it. The reality of hope is this, that while in crisis, while in despair, while we're in the darkest moments of our lives, we have a choice. We have a choice to go out and plant seeds. 
We don't have to feel hope to practice hope. And we can wholeheartedly trust that God will do the below the ground work, which will bring forth joy and abundance in the future. Maybe not in the way we expect, but always in the way we need. So friends, may you who sow with tears reap with songs of joy. May you who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, return home with songs of joy, with armloads of blessing. So as we come to the table, we get to do something as a community that's really beautiful. Jesus broke the bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So every time we do this, we are reminded that Jesus is at the center of what we do here. Without Jesus, we, we are nothing. We, we cease to exist. So this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Come to the table.